thank you for coming to join our worship this morning. And if you're joining us online, we value and appreciate you as part of our community. We're, we're glad you're joining us there too. I'm Jenny Sigler. I'm not the person usually to be up here. I taught 11th and 12th grade English at Campion Academy for 13 years. And I occasionally teach Sabbath school here. And I'm, I'm very honored to be sharing teaching with you again this morning. Will you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, I pray for your Holy Spirit to join us in our worship this morning and that you'll uh, guide my words and let our learning today be what you need us and want us to learn. Thank you so much in your name. Amen. So last week, or maybe the week before, I visited the doctor's office to get my allergy shots. Every two weeks or so, I stop by this office, I sign into the little iPad kiosk, and uh, then I ring the bell and the nurse calls me in and I get a shot in one arm, and then I get a shot in the other arm. And the first time that I went and did this, they said, okay, and now you need to sit and wait here for 30 minutes while we watch you. And I thought, I'm just going to sit around for 30 minutes? I, well, there's a reason. They're, they're watching you to make sure that, that you don't have a severe allergic reaction, so it's important. But 30 minutes seemed like a long time to just sit around. Um, now when I go, I'm anticipating that. I, I know the routine. I know what to expect. So I bring a book, bring my crocheting. I uh, can catch up with texts and emails on my phone. And 30 minutes goes by like that. Before I know it, I'm on my way. Now, when waiting is unexpected, it's a little different, right? Like the times when I'm at King Supers and I go up to the self-checkout and the employee there directs me to the long line down aisle eight for the self-checkout. And I, I look and see how, oh, and I think, this was just supposed to be a quick stop. This actually happened to me earlier this year when I went in to King Supers late on a Friday afternoon, which I know is a bad idea. But I went in there and found myself in a crowded store with long checkout lines, um, even at the self-checkout. And I was again directed down aisle eight at the end of, of all of these people also waiting to do the same thing. And, uh, and then just watched other people come around the corner after being directed there by an employee. They'd come around the corner and they would see uh, this long line of people. And uh, the reactions were striking. From my spot there in line, I'd see them come around, and some people would come around and look down the aisle and see this long line, and their shoulders would just drop, like, oh. Other people would come around the corner, and their hands would go up, and they'd roll their eyes, like they were angry. I don't have time for this. Some people started using colorful language. One man skipped the line and went right up to the employee. He was way, uh, he was, he was waving his bag of burger buns, saying, I only have this one thing. I, 
Like, like, he should be allowed to skip all of us because he just had this one thing. Well, however, uh, however all of these people reacted, whether it was with dismay or frustration, anger or discouragement, quiet resignation in some cases, no one appeared to relish the idea of spending more time standing in line at King Supers. Maybe King Supers needs to invest in some waiting line design. I learned a lot this week about queues or lines uh, are actually an area of research and investment for many companies. Waiting can be such a distasteful experience that businesses pay for human behavior specialists to design their waiting lines. And I'm sure you've seen airports, fast food restaurants, and, and the like create serpentine lines that don't appear as long. Psychologically, for, for customers, that makes a difference. A CNN journalist interviewed Don Norman, a user experience pioneer and director of the design lab at UCSD, who says a wait is a psychological state. Well, if waiting is just a state of mind, then no wonder businesses are trying to trick people into believing uh, that they're not really waiting. This journalist went on to describe how theme parks implement queue chunking, which is when they disguise a line by having it turn the corner of a building or go into another room, so people don't see how long it actually is. Perhaps the most drastic solution I read was about an airport who kept getting complaints for the long waits at the baggage carousel. After trying fruitlessly to make baggage delivery faster, the airport simply moved the arrival gates outside of the main terminal, making people walk six times longer to get their bags. Time was spent walking instead of waiting around, and complaints dropped to almost zero. I, I kind of wondered if that was Denver. None of the articles, by the way, suggested that people just needed to be more patient. Why is it so hard to be patient? I think it's part of human nature to have expectations. And for me, expectations usually have a timeline. And when those get interrupted or delayed, we feel impatient. What about long-term patience? We've all experienced waiting for something. And I'm willing to bet that if we set aside the minor inconveniences of waiting in line or waiting in traffic, that we've also all experienced uh, waiting for something much more important, maybe for months or even years. Maybe you're waiting to find the one who will be your husband or your wife, or you're waiting to find a house or a job, or waiting for an acceptance letter or for funding. Maybe you're waiting to be healed, or maybe you're waiting for a baby. The first thing we know about Sarai from the story in Genesis is that she's waiting for a baby. Genesis 11.30 tells us that she's Abram's wife 
and she's barren. And in case that wording wasn't clear, the Bible repeats it. She had no child. Now we know in the Bible, repetition means this is important. Pay attention. For Sarai, this was a really big deal. Not only was she just carrying the burden of, of disappointed maternal hopes, she felt the ancient stigma associated with barrenness. Zondervan's Bible backgrounds commentary explains that it was a judgment from God in their eyes. And it also jeopardized marriages since barrenness was the most common cause of divorce at that time. The NIV Cultural Study Bible states that in the ancient world, barrenness was a catastrophe because one of the primary roles of the family was to produce the next generation. The survival of the family line was of the highest value and it depended on producing progeny. So Sarah had not only a desire to have her own children, she felt a duty and a weighty responsibility. By the time Abram and Sarai leave Haran to travel to Canaan, he's 75 years old and she's 65 years old. Now, as I was reading this story, I was finding it really hard to wrap my mind around what old meant in Genesis. Because looking through the lineage leading up, well, from Shem to Abraham, uh, most of Abram's ancestors lived around 200 years. So wouldn't that just make 100 middle-aged? 65 is the new 26? Maybe not. I don't think it worked that way because all of, Abraham, all of Abram's predecessors began having children in their 20s and 30s, pretty similar to today. I think it's safe to say that Abram and Sarai would have expected the same. And once in their 60s and 70s, would have assumed that children was just something that they were going to miss out on. Yet, at the age of 65, Sarai would have heard God's promise to Abram, I will make you a great nation. That's in Genesis 12 too. And after they arrive in Shechem, God says again, to your descendants, I will give this land. So it's a, sp a spark of hope to them both, right? And Besides that, Abram's own father, Tira, was an exception in that long line of young dads that I looked at in his, uh, in his line of ancestors. Tira was the one exception because he began having children at the age of 70. And if I did my math right, Abram was born when Tira was 130. So maybe they're thinking, oh, this is what will happen for us. Maybe they haven't lost hope yet. Well, time passes. Abram and Sarai travel to Egypt to avoid a famine. They travel back. They probably wonder at times if God means he will give them a child of their own or if he's going to make a great nation through their nephew Lot. But Abram's and Lot's flocks and herds become so numerous that they have to separate ways. And Sarai sees that they are now without even their nephew, to carry on the family. God appears to Abram again and repeats the promise. In Genesis 13, 
verses 15 through 16, we see he says, all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. But descendants means kids, and there are no kids. More years go by. Somewhere along the way, Abram names his trusted servant Eleazar as his heir. War breaks out in the valley of Siddim, and Abram rescues Lot and the other inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he soundly defeats the confederation of kings. And God follows this season of warfare with another promise. In Genesis 15, 1, he says to Abram, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And Abram knows what that reward is supposed to be, and he can't help but respond, How is this going to work out, seeing I don't have any kids? He's thinking, this seems all wrong. God responds, it's not going to be Eliezer, but a child from your own body who's going to be your heir. Sarai, I'm sure, watches Abram chase away the vultures who come down on the carcasses of the covenant sacrifice, and she hears God's promise to give the entire land of Canaan to their descendants. She knows that somehow there will be a child. But more years go by. It's been 10 years since leaving Haran for Canaan. And Sarai is now 75 years old. And I imagine she could be anticipating menopause. She makes a shocking proposal to Abram. Well, actually, it's not that shocking. Some marriage contracts in the ancient world specifically dictated a course of action should the wife turn out to be barren. Solutions ranged from divorce to taking a second wife to servants used as surrogate mothers. Now, we don't know if Abram and Sarah had such a contract, but Sarah probably felt duty-bound to do something. And since male heirs were a necessity for preserving the family name and providing leadership, Sarai probably felt guilty for not being able to provide one for Abram, and thus for the whole clan. She might have assumed that it was all her fault, that maybe God was displeased with her. And so when she suggests her plan to Abram, as we see in Genesis 16:2, she places the blame on herself and on God. She says, see now, the Lord has restrained me from having children. I can imagine her rationalizing. I can imagine her thinking, God said the heir would come from Abram's own body, but he didn't say anything about mine. And so, ignoring God's age-old declaration that man and woman shall become one flesh, she says, please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. Sarah says, perhaps I shall obtain children. She doesn't say we, which I thought was kind of unusual. And I wondered if that's evidence of her taking, of her taking on the responsibility for providing the heir. In spite of 
all the promises that God has made to her husband. Could it be that at the root of Sarai's suggestion is guilt, fatigue from waiting, and a desire to be part of God's promise, but fear that she's not part of the plan? Perhaps giving Hagar to Abram is the one thing she can think of to try and fulfill her role as the matriarch of the clan. She's trying everything she can to make God's promise come true. But don't we usually run into trouble when we take responsibility for promises made by others? It's possible that Sarai's maid, Hagar, was a slave from Pharaoh's palace given to Sarai when they left Egypt. If that is so, leaving a palace to serve a nomadic clan living in tents may have felt like a demotion to Hagar. And then an offer to become the wife of the clan leader in order to provide a legitimate heir would have provided Hagar with a step back up. Legally, though, her child would belong to Sarai and Abram. But she would have more honor than she'd had as merely a slave to Sarai. According to custom, the surrogate mother gave birth on the knees of the adopting mother or placed the newborn baby on her knees. Hagar would retain no legal rights to her child. You remember this same thing happening a couple generations later. We see the same ancient custom invoked by Rachel and Leah. In their effort to outdo each other and secure love and attention from Jacob, you remember that those two sisters gave Jacob, their maidservants, to bear children for them. And, and you also remember uh, uh, Rachel saying to Jacob, give me children or else I die, which is more evidence of how important it was for, for the women to have sons. Well, the maidservants of Rachel and Leah, Bilhah and Zilpah, they each had two sons, but they didn't get to name them. Rachel and Leah named those boys because they were the legal mothers. Likewise, Hagar could expect to hand her baby over to Sarai and let her name it. The Zondervan Bible Handbook notes that as a servant, Hagar had no choice whether she participated in this plan or not. And we don't know if she thought that it would be a step up in status or if she really didn't want to and had ideas of a family for her own. We just don't know. But as Sarah's maid, Hagar obeyed. I imagine that Sarai became so consumed with her disappointment and guilt that she lost focus of the one who promised an heir in the first place. And so she gives Hagar to Abram, just like Eve gives Adam the fruit. The similar phrasing between Genesis 3 and Genesis 16 is no accident. The author is making very clear that this is a momentously big mistake. Both Adam and Abram heed the voice of their wives and they take what is given to them and paradise is lost. 
In the days following this decision, Sarai probably experienced hope and dread. In her shame, I wonder if she was secretly hoping that maybe Hagar wouldn't get pregnant. Because if Hagar didn't get pregnant, then it wouldn't be her fault after all, right? Maybe, maybe she could prove her innocence and she could say, I'm not cursed by God after all. Hagar couldn't have a baby either. Whatever her thoughts were, in a few weeks, Sarai realizes what a terrible mistake she's made. Because not only does Hagar's pregnancy confirm that she was the one with the problem, but it also changes Hagar's attitude toward her. Hagar may have just had her life path dictated to her, but she also now has something that her mistress does not. She has Abram's baby. The Bible background's commentary states that a woman's status in the marriage was not fully attained until she bore a son. As such, that means Hagar's marriage had a more solid standing than Sarai's. And she has more honor because she's the one providing the stability of leadership through an heir. So I imagine Sarai's regret here is even greater than Hagar's disdain. The older woman has to watch the younger go through all of the joys and challenges of being pregnant, but instead of it being a joyful experience, maybe when Hagar fills the baby kick for the first time, this is just another chance for them to dart disdainful looks at each other. At some point during the next nine months, it gets so bad that Sarai has serious words with Abram. In Genesis 16:5, you can read how upset she is. My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. Sarah thinks Abram is responsible for Hagar's disrespectful attitude. The, the suspicion the distrust, the jealousy, all this hurt are tearing their family life into shreds. Sarai is probably thinking, I waited 11 years for this? This seems all wrong. Abram backs her up. He says, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai deals harshly with her, and just as a side note, harshly is the same word used for how the Egyptians treated the Israelite slaves in the beginning of Exodus. When Hagar is treated harshly like that, she runs away. Somewhere along the road to Egypt, Hagar is probably thinking, I didn't choose this. This seems all wrong. God, do you see what's happening to me? And then she is stopped on her journey by none other than the angel of the Lord, Jesus, who tells her to go back. He promises her that she will be the mother of a multitude, and he tells her to call the baby's name Ishmael. God hears. Hagar returns, knowing that the God who sees has seen her, knows her vulnerable situation, 
And in spite of her insubordinate attitude, grants her the most sought-after blessing of all for women at that time. She will have descendants too numerous to count. And when she returns, we see that when the baby is born, Sarai doesn't name the baby after all. God has named him. In a way, God took back some of Hagar's motherly rights. Verse 15 tells us that Abram named the boy Ishmael, as Hagar must have asked him to do when she returned and told them her experience about meeting God. Well, now Sarai is seeing all of this happen. And for 13 years, she watches Ishmael grow. At some point during that 13 years, Sarai reaches menopause. And after hearing Hagar's story of God's promise to make Hagar the mother of multitudes, I wonder if Sarai just resigned herself to watching another woman realize God's covenant with Abram. Or maybe it was just this fresh, stinging regret for 13 years. I don't know. Either way, the doors have closed on Sarai's childbearing ability. There will be no children or grandchildren except the ones Abram has with his second wife, Hagar. For years, Sarai's been left out of any immediate participation in God's promise, and now there's no chance she ever will. There's nothing more she can do. Until one day. Sarah is working inside one afternoon and sees Abraham leave his spot at the tent door. She looks out to see that he's gone out to meet three strangers coming down the road. Before she knows it, he's back at the tent door asking her to take 20 quarts of flour and bake bread for their three guests, quickly. Then he's off to select a calf for one of the servants to prepare for a meal. She's never seen Abraham rush around this much. Sarah and her servants get started baking a month's supply, literally a month's supply of bread. And then she returns to the tent, and she can hear Abraham talking to their guests, and she's suddenly surprised to hear her own name. Where is Sarah, your wife? This is in Genesis 18, verses 9 and 10. Where is Sarah, your wife, she hears. And I imagine she thinks, how does he know I'm Sarah? Only recently have their names changed, and they've started calling each other Abraham and Sarah. Abraham tells them she's there in the tent. Sarah, I think, is so intrigued, she comes to the door where she can only see the back of their visitor. And then all of a sudden, the visitor is saying, Sarah, your wife, shall, has, shall have a son. What? Sarah's laugh within herself may have been one of disbelief, but her comment shows us how cherished had been her hopes of having a baby, of having her own child. She says, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? 
she's thinking, this is impossible. Getting pregnant is not an option for me anymore. When she says, shall I have pleasure? The Hebrew word she uses for pleasure is Aden. It means delicate, delight. It's also the same word for Adam and Eve's home, the Garden of Aden, the paradise God created for the first humans. I imagine Sarah's thinking, are you really saying, I'm going to have my little piece of paradise after all? That I won't be labeled as cursed anymore? That after 25 years of waiting, I'll have the pleasure of being a mom? Sarah laughs her shocked laughter even after God changed their names to Sarah and Abraham. And I don't really know what to do with this part of the story. I, I can't, uh, I don't know what to make of it. And I hope that you'll read it and talk to me about it later so that I can understand it. But this part of the story is happening after God has appeared to Abraham and given them the covenant of circumcision and renamed them and said, you will have a son. Uh, Sarah has, has, I believe, heard God's promise that she would be the mother of nations and she would be the one to bear the son whom they would name Isaac. But she still acts shocked when she hears the visitor outside the tent tell her that she's going to have a son. Does it mean that she had just dismissed the idea totally? Do you think that years of waiting for something can start to cement ideas in our head? And we think, it's always going to be like this. Was, Was Sarah growing cynical? I don't know, but their visitor, in his all-knowing wisdom, reminds Sarah, in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then, not only does God work a miracle in her, he assures her that it's his job to provide the heir. I will return to you, he says. I think this assures her that the barrenness isn't her fault. God isn't going to leave Sarai out and settle for the surrogate mother. He wants Sarah. She's been part of the plan all along. She becomes a walking miracle, the embodiment of God's fulfilled promise to Abraham. Not only has Sarah been a part of the promise all along, but now she gets to see her own belly grow and feel the baby kick after 25 years of waiting. It wasn't a trial, it was a saga. Is that what we can call long-term patience? I've thought to myself, wow, I don't think I could ever be patient for that long. But one thing I realized just this week is that Abraham and Sarah weren't either. They didn't have a record of perfect patience. They really messed up. The important thing here is that even when my faith struggles, like like theirs did, God is faithful. He'll be faithful to me, just like he was to Abraham and Sarah, and Hagar and Ishmael, 
in all of their family drama and manipulation and marginalization and struggling faith. I may be worried about the current trial of waiting, current waiting line I'm in, but God has a long-term plan for me and for you. And even if we're feeling like we're stuck waiting for something, wasting our time, God's not wasting his. He's working in the background continuously for us, for our situation, for our character building, and for our heart's desires. We're part of his plan, and he's faithful, always faithful to carry out what he's promised for us. This morning, I opened my Bible, praise team, and it, it fell open. This doesn't happen very often. It's very cool when it does. My Bible fell open to Isaiah 25, and I have highlighted text there, and I, I want to read you what I read this morning. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are of faithfulness and truth. And then Isaiah 25, 9 says, And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There are, there are so many things we can take from, from the long wait of Sarah and Abraham. But what I, what I take away is this. We are all sinful humans in need of a savior, but God is bigger than our mistakes. He is gracious towards us. God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. And the wait is always worth it. Thank you. Our uh, closing hymn <clears throat> will be number 623 in the hymnal. <clears throat> I will follow thee, my Savior, wheresoever my lot may be. Where thou goest, I will follow. Yes, my Lord, I'll follow thee. Number 623, we'll sing stanzas one, two, and three. Thou hast wrong. 
Father in heaven, I pray you will send each one of us away today with assurance of your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.